Hello and welcome to The Forge. My name is James and this is the place where I teach verse by verse through the Bible. I am a retired U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant who went on to serve the Lord's Church as an assistant pastor, worship leader, and youth pastor. During my time in these roles, I finished seminary and I hold a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies and a Master of Divinity. I've been involved in ministry in some form for over 25 years, and it is my hope that this podcast will be a blessing to you as I teach from God's Word, the Bible. Forge exists to serve those whom the Holy Spirit is calling into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is done through biblical teaching so that individuals understand God's forgiveness, live in its reality, and overcome the wounds caused by bondage to sin. I will always hold to the truth found in scriptures, and a summary of my doctrinal statement is worded perfectly in the five solas of the Reformation. I believe Christians experience gratefulness and renewed purpose as they are encouraged by the words of life, which spring from the Bible. I pray that this podcast plays a role in God's ongoing work in your life. Don't forget to look in the show notes for links to the podcast website where you can leave a donation or leave a voice message with questions. I will be collecting questions for a future Q&A podcast. Also, please leave a review on whatever platform you are using. That and telling others about this podcast are the two biggest things you can do for me. Now grab your Bible and get ready for a verse-by-verse study. May God bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. Hello, dear listener, and welcome back to The Forge. I want you to know how much I look forward to our time together, and this podcast is truly a labor of love. I love the Word of God, and I love His church. It's a blessing for me as I work on this podcast, and I hope it's a blessing for you, dear Christian. And if you happened upon this podcast and you are not a Christian, It is my hope that you will have a listen to consider the claims of Christ, consider the claims of his followers, that the eternal son of the one and only living God took on human flesh, that he being fully God and fully man was able to keep God's law, the law which each of us have broken that he atoned for his people upon a Roman cross after going through a mockery of a trial, that it was there upon that cross that he received the full wrath of God on behalf of the ones he came to save, that he died, he was buried, and he rose up from the grave, and that this same Jesus Christ ascended into heaven where he now sits at God the Father's right hand, that he sent his Holy Spirit to indwell 
the lives of the saved, and that no one may see God except through Christ. Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. With that said, and whether you're a new listener or you're one who's been here for a while, you know where this episode is going, and you know where I, as your host, makes his stand. There's a great emphasis on the Bible in this podcast. Indeed, this podcast is dedicated to taking the Bible one verse at a time, remaining consistent, keeping these words in context, and bringing that teaching to you. Now, let us continue to work our way through this glorious book of Genesis as we pick it up in Genesis chapter 42, verse 1. Genesis 42, verse 1, the word of God. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, Where do you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, No, But you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, Your servants are twelve brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I spoke to you, saying, You are spies. In this manner, you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place Unless your youngest brother comes here, send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in the prison three days. Then Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. 
Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish in his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? Then they went to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men, we are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone, and bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks. They surprisingly, each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more, and you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way, in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. I have called this section of my Bible, Joseph and his brothers. Perhaps you have a study Bible where the editors have offered some kind of a similar title at this point. I'm personally not a fan of these kinds of editorial inputs, as I want the Holy Spirit to be the one to speak and Often I feel that these kinds of titles placed in study Bibles, though they are done so with good intentions, they can often suggest something to your mind and take it in a different direction. And maybe you would have thought of it in a slightly different way without that suggestion uh, in the title. But that being said, um, (laughs) 
I offer my own editorial title of Joseph and his brothers. So I guess I can't be too critical, can I? So at this point, Joseph has spent 13 years total in Potiphar's house and then in prison. And he then spent the last seven years as uh, second in command of all of Egypt. If you add seven plus the 13, you end up with 20. That's 20 years total. And in the last chapter, we read that uh, Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh. Um, and that actually makes it just a little bit over 20 years total. Um, because remember, he was 17 when he was sold into slavery. So you have 20 years without seeing his beloved father. 20 years without seeing Benjamin. And the Bible doesn't tell us what was going on in uh, with Jacob and the other sons. Uh, Benjamin would probably be about 23 years old at this time, and certainly the other brothers would have all grown up and started families of our own. We got a glimpse of this back in chapter 38, as you may recall. Judah's departure from the rest of the family is recorded there, along with his other exploits in chapter 38. And remember, we talked about how chapter eight seems to be kind of an abrupt insert into the story of Joseph. And you may remember, I encourage us to think of it as a parenthetical story. And we also express the importance of Judah's role in the history of the entire nation of Israel. But let us just imagine for a moment what it would be like to live with the secret of what happened to Joseph for over 20 years or roughly 20 years. They must have thought of him often. We know that Jacob never stopped grieving for Joseph. The guilt and the shame that was heaped upon the brothers must have been extremely hard to bear. And as we consider what we've just read, Think about how their consciences now were once again stirred. Indeed, there is no doubt in, my, in their minds that what has come upon them is now God's judgment for what they did to Joseph. And they even confess their guilt. And notice, too, how much Joseph learned um, that... He learned that his beloved brother Benjamin was still alive, but let's, uh, I need to hold on here. Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. There's a lot to unpack here. So let's just do a little bit of a review. Remember that sons number two and number three, that would be Simeon and Levi, were guilty of a premeditated genocide at Shechem. We covered that in Genesis chapter 34. And I want you to remember that as we move through this narrative. If you need to go back for a refresher, feel free to turn in your Bible back to Genesis chapter 34, and you can read all about it there. And certainly go listen to my episode on that, where we unpack that one as well. And you might think, well, okay, that's son number two and three. They're still the oldest son, right? I mean, the number one son did not plan that invasion, right? 
And we would say, no, he did not plan that invasion. However, he was guilty, if you will remember, of incest with his father's concubine. And that would be Reuben, you may recall from chapter 35. And if that wasn't enough, these 10 brothers took Joseph, beat him, stripped him, threw him into a pit with every intention to kill him. And it was actually God's providence that brought the caravan of the slave traders through their encampment. And in just in case you're thinking, okay, well, that's son number one, number two, and number three, we still have son number four, right? Well, that was Judah. And you might be thinking, well, Judah was a fairly okay kind of guy. Let's not forget his impregnation of his own daughter-in-law, Tamar. And he did that while thinking that she was a prostitute. And the whole reason that came about is because Judah was not keeping his promises. And you can certainly go back and read the story of Judah. So what am I saying? I'm saying son one, two, three, and four sound like some guys with some pretty obvious flaws, disgusting flaws. And I point out these obvious flaws in their character for a number of reasons. One reason that I bring it out is because I want you to consider something. If you and I were going to make up our own religion, of course, we would have stories to go along with our religion. Would these be the kind of guys that we would want as patriarchs of a great nation and our made up religion? I would submit no, we wouldn't want this kind of thing recorded. In other words, I find the Bible's exposure of the hearts of its characters as a kind of internal proof that this book must be true. Who would expose the heroes of their story in this way? And this is, to me, just another indicator that this book of books was ultimately authored by someone far superior to our own ideas of morality. It's like Charles Wesley once stated, and this is a quote from Charles Wesley. He said, the Bible must be the invention either of good men or angels, bad men or devils, or of God. However, it was not written by good men because good men would not tell lies by saying, thus saith the Lord. It was not written by bad men because they would not write about doing good duty while condemning sin and themselves to hell. Thus it must be written by divine inspiration. And maybe someday I will unpack that famous quote from Charles Wesley even more. But moving on with our narrative, we learn that Canaan was now affected by this famine which had started in Egypt. And the setting is one of Jacob and his family, now a large clan, raising cattle and sheep. No doubt the famine had damaged the entire economy. You can have money, but if there's no food to buy, your money means nothing. You can't eat money. And of course, without something to feed the cattle, the entire livelihood of the family can vanish. 
So verses one through four record that Jacob sends Joseph's 10 brothers to Egypt to buy grain. What he supposes meant by that question, he asked, why are you looking at each other? It could be that they were afraid to go to Egypt because they might see Joseph there. They could have been looking at each other and wondering what the other guy was thinking. <laughs> and what did actually happen to Joseph? They were all in this together. And I would suggest that Jacob is no fool. He doesn't have any actual proof of what has happened, but he knows the character of his sons, as we've just outlined with only four of them. And the Bible doesn't say it, but Jacob could have suspected them for something. In fact, it stops short of Jacob saying that he actually suspects them, but he does blame them. And 20 years is a long time for whispers and conversations to be overheard. 20 years of stolen glances and unusual behavior and hushed tones in the conversation and I want you to think about it. Put yourself in the story. We've all seen those cases where people are having a conversation that they thought was private and somebody else walks into the room and how everyone jumps and tries to act like, oh, we weren't talking about anything. We've all seen that. So Jacob keeps Benjamin back. Why? Well, because Benjamin was the last surviving son of Rachel and Benjamin is Joseph's full brother where the other ones were half brothers. Jacob had truly loved Rachel and now she was gone. Joseph is gone also. And Jacob did not trust his sons. And even if he did trust them, he wanted to keep Benjamin home safe. Verses 5 through 13 have the brothers appearing before Joseph, fulfilling the dream from back in Genesis 37. But I would just add here that the dream is not totally fulfilled yet because remember, Joseph had all the brothers present bowing before him. So Benjamin is not here. And his dream also had his father bowing before him. And that hasn't happened yet. And so this phrase, bowed down, it's a way of saying that they are showing respect, honor, and obedience. And it appears from this scripture that Joseph is in charge of the operation. No one gets grain unless they are given some by uh, some kind of order from Joseph personally. And once again, we have to consider the incredible responsibility that has been placed upon Joseph by Pharaoh and ask yourself why such a structure would be set up. Well, because Joseph had to keep an accurate inventory to ensure that the Egyptians are fed first. And also there's money being exchanged here and that's got to be properly accounted for. There had to be measures in place to ensure that the money handlers weren't stealing from the government. And Joseph would have truly been on the lookout for spies who may attempt to learn of Egypt's weaknesses and bring war and actually take the food rather than pay for it. 
And though these bearded Semites or Hebrews may have hated every second of it, they were showing humility as they bowed down before who they would perceive as a pagan Egyptian. And think of Joseph's thoughts toward his brothers. He had to know this day was going to come if the famine did, in fact, reach that far out to Canaan. And he must have thought of ways to seek revenge. It's only human nature. He also had to think about the security of the grain, the money, and really all of Egypt. And he could not allow his personal feelings to jeopardize his office or the Egyptian people. His brothers did not recognize him. Uh, For one, he was now about 38 years old, if my math is correct, and they have not seen him since he was 17 years old. And he also did not speak Hebrew. He was speaking to them through an interpreter. No doubt he had royal clothes, a shaved head, and possibly even Egyptian eye makeup. He looked Egyptian. He would still be in possession of pharaoh's signet and the golden chain that would be around his neck because this showed his status among the people he looked egyptian and remember my way of saying that is that he would have been egyptized (laughs) egyptized so he's fully looking like an egyptian citizen And of course, being in this position so close to royalty, he certainly wouldn't be there if he was a Hebrew. So Joseph could have actually thought that these men, his brothers, were really and truly up to no good. If anyone knew what these men were capable of, it was Joseph. We just went through some of their more notable actions. So he accuses them of being spies. The power that Joseph had was the power over all the land. You must understand he answered to no one but Pharaoh. And there's a real good chance that Joseph could have had them executed and Pharaoh would not have even known about it or even cared about it. This was not the modern West where the accused have rights. If Joseph stated that you were a spy, that was it. You're a spy. And consider just four questions here that Joseph would have had. First, he would want to know if his father is still alive. Question number two, is Benjamin still alive? Question number three, If father has passed away, are you brothers now fighting among yourselves for control of the inheritance? And number four, here's a fourth question that could have gone through Joseph's mind, and it's perhaps the most important, given their notorious background, could the ones who had some 20 years ago sold him into slavery, could they even be trusted? So now we find ourselves at verses 14 through 17, and we can clearly see that Joseph 
was thinking about Benjamin. They had just lied to Joseph about Joseph being dead. And I, I've wondered about this as I was preparing. Imagine that someone is telling you that you are dead. They don't recognize you. And they're telling you that you're dead. <laughs> and, you know, Joseph has to wonder, perhaps they've taken out their wrath on Benjamin as well. They may be lying about Benjamin being home with their father. And Joseph would know since his father had been deprived of Joseph and now deprived of Rachel, that perhaps Benjamin had even been more favored and thus more hated by the brothers. Were the father and the brother of Joseph truly alive or was it just another lie? So now would be a great time to talk about lies. Notice what happens when you tell a lie. You have to cover it up. And you cover it up with more lies. And you also break the trust of those who love you the most. And you carry the guilt and the shame within your own heart and your own soul because you know the truth. Regardless of what everybody else knows, you know the truth. And ultimately, dear Christian, your relationship with God is hindered as long as you hold on to that lie. The very first sin of all mankind was based on a lie. And at the heart of every sin is a lie or some form of deceit. It's not really going to hurt that bad. It's not really going to go on that long. You can do this and you won't get caught. Deceit, lies, leads to sin. So Joseph has every reason to be suspicious. No one would deny that. And so we read that Joseph takes an oath by the life of Pharaoh, he says, that they will be kept in prison until he can prove their story. One of them must go back, get Benjamin, and bring him before this evil, stubborn Egyptian ruler. And no doubt they had to be thinking that this was poetic justice for what they had done in those earlier years. And, and Joseph locks them up for three days. Three days the brothers sit in jail. That's three days of staring at each other. Three days to argue among themselves. Three days to remember that they had conspired to what they had conspired to do to their 17-year-old brother. And three days to determine which one would go back to their father and get Benjamin to be the proof that they needed. Now, being the first book of the Bible, I've reminded you several times to be on the lookout for first things. And here, even though we are near the end of this great book, we have another first. This is the first place recorded in the Bible where the guilty actually confess their guilt. And we should notice that their bitterness and their anger, their distress, it's all directed against themselves. They do not direct this at the governor. 
And Joseph now learns possibly for the first time that Reuben had been the one to plead on behalf of Joseph. And Reuben, as we've discussed already, and it will be affirmed by the end of the book of Genesis, he was weak, he was unstable, and thus he had very little impact on the others. And in the end, he was also guilty. And now it seems that they all assume Joseph died in Egypt, and now their blood will be required of them. But in verses 18 through 23, we read an interesting statement by Joseph. See, Joseph admits that he fears God. And this must have served as proof to these Hebrews that there was some knowledge of the one true living God, even in a pagan land. Joseph would have called him Yahweh or perhaps Elohim. And they had not mentioned the one true living God, but this pagan viceroy did. So Joseph overhears them talking about the circumstances of his captivity, and for the first time, he gets a glimpse into their true heart. Remember, they don't know that he can understand them. They admit to the crime, and we also see a part of the story which wasn't revealed at first. And you may remember when we first went through this several chapters ago, I told you that more would be revealed later. Well, here it is. It tells us here that Joseph was pleading with them not to do this thing. Indeed, we see that they had heard these pleas from Joseph. And notice this, they have remembered those cries for help. And Reuben now refers to Joseph as the boy. And the others now refer to Joseph as their brother. Why is that significant? Because they're not calling him the dreamer. They're not mocking him. There's even a touch of tenderness here from Reuben, referring to him as being just a boy. You see, these remaining brothers knew that they deserved the death penalty. And remember, I've brought this up several times, even though the Ten Commandments had not been given yet, there was a knowledge in all the cultures of the ancient world that killing another human was wrong. And remember, too, from Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, which we've covered, God had instructed Noah, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for he is in the image of God. I want to talk to you just a bit about the grace of guilt. What? <laughs> you might be thinking, grace of guilt? What are you talking about? True guilt, friends, is grace. You know, in today's world, we've been influenced by psychological schemes that have their roots in uh, Freudian analysis, which seeks to dismiss our conscience, tells us that these ideas about guilt are just a safety device 
which we have somehow constructed to keep order in a quote-unquote civilized society. But guilt, friends, it's not just a safety valve. Guilt is grace. You see, these brothers are racked with guilt at this point. And this is what drives a person to his or her knees before God. You've heard me say this in other episodes. Law to the proud. Grace to the humble. Without guilt and the realization of your crimes against God, there can be no forgiveness. That's why we say law to the proud. The proud person has to see himself or herself in light of God's law, not the way they wish it would be, not how unfair they think it is, not trying to put up some kind of a defense for what they've done, but they need to see themselves as a lawbreaker. God's law. You see, until that is done, there can be no resolution. When someone denies their need for Christ, it is simply because they do not admit that they are lawbreakers. And these brothers experienced a good dose of graced guilt. If you find yourself in the place where the Holy Spirit is dealing with you about your guilt before God, the best thing you can do is embrace it. Receive His grace. So as this drama continues to unfold, Joseph also decides it's not necessary to hold them all hostage. One will suffice. And he also knew they had to bring the food back to his father and the other family members. Joseph sends them away with their grain, but he also puts the money back into their sacks without them knowing it. And he places Simeon in prison as the hostage that he will hold. Why do you suppose that Joseph would choose Simeon? Well, do you remember who had the idea to kill Joseph at the first? And we already know what Simeon is capable of. We've already covered it. Now the brothers find themselves at home, minus Simeon. And all the money that they thought they had spent is actually in their sacks. So making their way home, they tell Jacob of the events of their journey. And they explain that they must return with Benjamin to verify their truthfulness and to get more grain. And of course, they want to get Simeon back as well. But notice that they change things up a little bit in verse 34. They tell Jacob that they will be permitted to trade in the land. Joseph didn't say anything about trading in the land. Joseph had threatened them with an implied death sentence back in verses 18 and 20. He said, do this and live. And if you do this, you will not die. He never said anything about trading in the land. They also left out the part about being in prison for three days. They they kind of skipped over that part. The brothers probably did this to soften the blow on their father. Jacob responds with more truth than he even knew himself at that moment. 
and he tells them that they are responsible for Joseph's death because at this point they've all assumed that Joseph is dead and now Simeon's imprisonment and now they want to take Benjamin and Jacob just flat out says no I am refusing to let Benjamin go so we just talked about the grace of guilt but I want to bring up two more themes here before we close out this episode the first is godly fear when the brothers see the money that was in their bags the Bible tells us that their hearts failed them and they do not blame the reappearance of the money upon the governor of Egypt they don't know what's going on but this is what they say what is this that God has done to us they fear God and they are recognizing their sins against God their guilt has brought them to the place where they could see that God is behind their circumstances and now they are afraid just as their guilt was a good thing so too is this godly fear the brothers recognize that they have no one to turn to except God and let's talk about the second thing here at the end I wanted to bring up sorrow let's talk about sorrow in his refusal to let Benjamin go and make the trip with the other brothers Jacob mentions his gray hair and his sorrow his grief has taken its toll and Jacob makes it clear that his gray hair his sorrow is the fault of his sons and it's reasonable to think that the brothers also shared in the grief nothing could make you more sorrowful than knowing that you were to blame for your father's current miserable condition and the Bible tells us in 2nd Corinthians chapter 7 verses 10 and 11 says for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted but the sorrow of the world produces death for observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner what diligence is produced in you what clearing of yourselves what indignation what fear what vehement desire what zeal what vindication we'll close with this final thought from our Kent Hughes and his commentary Genesis beginning in blessing and this is what he says guilt their admission of guilt the acceptance of responsibility for their sins this real guilt this godly guilt put them in the way of forgiveness fear next their godly fear the realization that God was afflicting them focused their souls on the only source of forgiveness and help sorrow and their godly grief and sorrow then paved the way for repentance dear listener where are you 
in your relationship with God? Have you come to that place where you realize your own guilt? Have you come to that place where you have a genuine fear? You recognize that if God was to call you home right now, in other words, if you were to die right now, and God was to judge you, that it would not go well for you. Do you have that kind of a godly fear? Sorrow. Have you been brought to that place where you have a genuine sorrow? Not only for what you've done to other people or what you have failed to do to other people. Sometimes it's not actions. Sometimes it's the failure to act when you know you should. But you realize that I've not only sinned against other human beings, I've sinned against God. Is there a sorrow in your soul because you've sinned against God? It is His law that you've broken. Have you come to that place, dear friends? I would say, if you have that guilt, if you have that fear, if you have that sorrow, it is a good thing. I would call you to repentance now and to turn to Christ, hear the gospel and receive it. Receive Christ and his free gift of salvation. Pray to him and let him know that you feel the guilt, that you have a godly fear, you are sorry for what you've done, and you want him to take over your life, to save you, and to rule in your heart and in your life. To take it all away. He doesn't just cover your sin. He removes it. As far as the east is from the west. So friends, I encourage you, if you've been brought to that place, call out to the only one who can save you. If you haven't felt this, and you happen to be listening to this podcast, <laughs> I'm praying for you. <laughs> I'm praying that the Lord would use the words that I'm speaking, that he would be merciful to you, that the Holy Spirit might move upon your heart. Because if you don't feel the guilt, if you don't feel the fear and the sorrow in a godly way, there is no hope for you, my friend. That is a sorrowful, scary place to be is your conscience seared toward the one true living God. I pray for you. I pray that God uses this podcast to reach people just like you. With that being said, folks, we will pick it up in chapter 43. When the next episode drops, I want to thank you so much for meeting with me here and contemplating the truth of God's word. Thank you so much, and God bless.
thank you again for listening to the Forge podcast. And don't forget to leave a review with comments. Let me hear from you. Leave a voice message through the link. I hope and pray that you find ways to apply the truths of God's word in daily living. Remember, dear Christian, you are forgiven. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. May you grow in Christ in the study of the Bible and truly overcome wounds that were caused by sinful choices and actions of the past. I also pray that you are always reforming, seeking to glorify God in all that you say and do. Remember to be grateful to God for what he is working out not only in you but in all his creation as well. And lastly, be encouraged. Encouraged to serve God and others as you grow in him.